This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today, we're chatting to the Honourable David Littleproud. David is the member for Maranoa in Queensland, leader of the Federal National Party and Shadow Minister for Agriculture. He was elected to the Parliament in 2016 and has held many critical roles within the government which has influenced agricultural policy within Australia. David is passionate about agriculture and rural communities and has a desire to make positive changes to allow all rural and regional communities to prosper. In this episode, you'll hear about David's early connection to agriculture and rural communities, his key achievements for the agricultural sector throughout his political career, and where he sees Australian agriculture heading into the future. David will also share his philosophy on leadership and how to decide when to commit compromise or walk away. You'll also hear another voice in the episode today. Joining me for the chat with David is Catherine Davies. Catherine, who will be calling KD, is the General Manager of Agribusiness at Rural Bank. KD is an expert when it comes to all things leadership, so we thought it would be a great idea to bring her into the conversation. Let's jump in. What a special episode. KD, David, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having us. Fantastic to be here. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Right here, David, can you take me back to the beginning? Where did your connection to agriculture start? In my hometown of Chinchilla. Mum and Dad had a mixed farming operation just outside Chinchilla, a place called Canniga. That was third, fourth generation. Basically, uh, from the moment I could remember, we were out of the farm. Dad was actually a teacher as well before he went into state politics, but the farms uh, were pretty important to us uh, as a big part of my upbringing. And then obviously, as I went through education, I wasn't academically gifted, but dad didn't want me coming back to the land. So I started off as a cotton chipper around uh, Chinchilla, picked a few watermelons and a few potatoes. And then the National Bank picked me up and I ended up out in Western Queensland running around there for many years. But basically, it was my childhood in Chinchilla, one of those lucky childhoods in regional Australia. But very fortunate that we lived in town, but we're only 40 k's out of the farm, so we'd be out there every weekend and, and sometimes after school. For those non-Queenslanders, a cotton chipper, what does they do? A redundant job uh, now. Uh, effectively, you used to walk up and down the rows of cotton chipping weeds with a hoe. So most of the rows out our part of the world were about one and a half kilometre long. So you'd walk for three k's before you got a drink of water in the middle of the summer, but paid very good money uh, in those days, I think. From memory, you were getting paid over 20 bucks an hour even back then. So, And I'm no spring chicken. It was a hot job, but in the season, you made some really good money. So uh, I enjoyed it. I got fit, but uh, no, it was good fun. And and now, obviously, with the advancement in technology and science, no longer needed in the cotton industry. And while it's sad for younger people uh, to not have that opportunity, there's other opportunities that have been provided because of that investment in technology and, and science. What has kept you so connected to the agricultural industry throughout your life and career? Yeah, I've never lived in a capital city and don't intend to. Always lived out in my electorate of Maranoa. But even when I um, got into the bank, I was interested in agriculture. And so I went to be part of their agri-business section. 
of National Australia Bank, which meant that I was dealing with farmers every day, sitting around kitchen tables, doing budgets, basically an intrinsic part of their business. So I was pretty fortunate. While I'm probably not much of a farmer anymore and no good at it, I've got a few acres out here, but um, I don't even have the time to do anything with that. A bit of loose and um, that my neighbour now grows because I'm never here. It just kept me connected to it and I've always enjoyed it, always had a passion for it and it was just one of those things and travelled all through Western Queensland, Charles, George, Miles, Cunnamulla and then came a bit further east around Warwick and Stanthorpe. So I saw some pretty diverse commodities from horticulture right through to cotton, cattle, sheep, even thoroughbred horses. So really had an interest and been very fortunate that someone was prepared to pay for me to do that, even though I wasn't academically gifted enough to go to university and have a degree. So um, I went to the University of Hard Knocks and Dry Gullies in Western Queensland. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. As the uh, the member for Maranoa too, you know, one of the things I've observed about you is how much you champion rural communities. Really keen to understand, you know, what is it that you believe is so important about a rural community? Oh, it's a sense of community. It's just we're there for one another. We don't live in big cities, or, and if you're lucky, on 400 square metres of dirt and six foot on fence. And even if you do in some of our larger towns, the towns are too small for you to stay and hide and not be part of the community. And in a sense, everybody gives, I think, the essence of Australia, of what our nation was built on. As someone also who's very passionate about living in a regional community, oh, that's great to hear. So you've held a number of ministerial positions and portfolios since you were elected to federal government in 2016, and you're currently the, the Shadow Minister for Agriculture. What are you most proud of achieving for agriculture and rural Australia during your time in Parliament? I'm passionate about live sheep and live exports full stop because we do do it better than anyone else in the world. And if we're not there, someone else will and they won't do it to our standard. And we've got a responsibility as a good global citizen to lead the world and to think that people think that, oh, you we just process them here. That's folly. I can tell you, I went and met with the Prime Minister of Kuwait and Qatar, and as an ag minister, you don't normally get to see that, normally a long way down the run. But such was the concern about their food security. But this is cultural as well, is that if we don't do it, someone else will. And I can tell you, they won't be processing these animals to the standard we do either. I mean, when I was in Kuwait City, they built a brand new abattoir the size of a rugby league field, complete with a viewing area for 2,000 people, complete with a playpen in the corner for the kids. So it's culturally what happens is they, they don't want processed sheep. They go there and they put a tag around the sheep in, in the pen. And when their number comes up, they go to the perspex and watch it all the way through the process. They get to the end, the butcher puts it in into the cuts they want. They grab the kids out of the playpen, they go to the car and they go home. That's cultural. We can't change that. And it's arrogant and ignorant for us to think that we can. David, thinking now about the future and, and where we're heading, what are the key positive policy changes that you'd like to see for agriculture and also for our rural and regional communities in the future? I think it'll be getting back to where we were before the last election. And unfortunately, there'll be the things that this government's taken away from us. It's the ag visa. I mean, the NFF and COSBO, I, I tried to be constructive as soon as I uh, went into opposition. I went to the Jobs and Skills Summit because I believe Regional Australia needed a voice there. The NFF and COSBO identified we need 172,000 extra workers to get food from paddock to your plate or to a port. The best this government would give us is 42,000 through the Pacific scheme where you'd have to compete with aged care, childcare, healthcare. 
So we don't have enough workers. We're constraining not just at the farm gate but through the supply chain. So reinstatement of the ag visa and a sensible pathway about migration, particularly into regional Australia, and the skilled migration, not just in agriculture but right across it, is what we need to return to. The confidence for the live sheep industry that will continue on and that they can have investment confidence, particularly in that. The Murray-Darling being fixed up. We go back to what the Murray-Darling was first agreed to in 2012, even before I was in Parliament. I wasn't there when they came in, but I cut a deal with the Labor Party to live up to that. That's 2,750 gigalitres. That's the basin plan. And that balance, that basin plan, I delivered 2,100 of that. The last 650 can be delivered with infrastructure, not buybacks. And the 450 is dead. I killed the 450 with that neutrality test, but it's important now that probably we have to go back and cremate the thing so it never comes back again if we get back into government. That gives confidence to everybody. And then it's basically getting out of farmers' lives. The best thing that we can do is stay away from them. Protecting our borders with biosecurity, and I'm proud of the over a billion dollars we put in, and I'm confident we'll keep FMD and LSD out. and Technology will get us there, particularly if we keep investing in the next four to five years. So our job would be about focusing on the biosecurity and continuing on the trade agreements, making sure that people spread their risks. They don't put all their eggs into one market, and we saw that with China and the risks that come with that. But governments don't force exporters where to send their product to. That's a commercial decision. Our job is simply to provide the free trade agreements to give you an opportunity to send it wherever you want. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And one of the other big reforms that I'm proud of is research and development. I don't think we've quite got there. I don't think Murray Watts quite finished it off in terms of the first principle, which would be value to the levy payer, value to the taxpayer, remove duplication and increase commercialisation. I think that's where we've got to continue to invest in. There's over a billion dollars worth of R&D levies between the taxpayer and the farmer that I think can be better harnessed and then commercialised to give us even a bigger ecosystem that gives our farmers the tools they need to increase productivity. I think that's where it is. And I think some water infrastructure is all we need to do and then stay the hell away from our farmers and just let them get on with the job. That's all governments have to do. It's a pretty simple equation. I'm not an educated man, but for a bloke from Western Queensland with a year 12 education, that's as complicated as it gets for me. David, you sit in a really unique position and I'm really keen to understand what you see the opportunities are for Australian agriculture over the next 10 to 20 years. Well, I think it's going to be underpinned by R&D and science technology. I think that's really where the opportunity will come. I think that's where government's job is really is for its people and particularly agriculture is to put the infrastructure and environment around it. So the environment is about making sure that we have R&D ecosystem that can be commercialised, that actually goes to the heart of what drives productivity. And it's about making sure those free trade agreements are there so that they have the environment to trade. The infrastructure is about making sure that we have the biosecurity, but we also have particularly the water infrastructure to support that. But I've got to say, I've given up on water infrastructure. It's illegal for a federal politician to pick a shovel up and dig a hole in any state or territory. The constitution is very clear. The management and ownership of resources belongs to the states. We try to provide a check. I mean, we put over $7 billion on the table, and this isn't a political go at any state government of any persuasion. They were all bad. We had money on the table, and we could not get an approval out of a state government to build a dam. In fact, we got one, 
which is just down the road from me here at Emu Swamp, and then that's been pulled with the change of government. And it was in scale of dams, wasn't all that big. So we'll be prepared to provide that infrastructure, but we need courageous state governments to come with us, and that's one of the limitations of federation that I've found. I think the big opportunities are there. It's basically government just putting that infrastructure and environment around people and then getting out of their way as quickly as they possibly can. What are some of those real key issues that the agriculture industry needs to overcome to be successful if it's going to capitalise on, I suppose, the opportunities that you do see out there? I think it's important that we celebrate it is successful. We've done a damn good job considering not just weather but also that little thing called COVID. If it wasn't for agriculture and resources, when everyone else was put under the doona, we kept going. Regional Australia kept going. We paid the bills. And, you know, our nation should be profoundly proud of our farmers and our resource sector for what they've done. So the opportunities are still there. We've got to understand our place in the world. We're not going to feed all the world, nor do we want to. But we've got to market and target the markets that are most important to us that give us the premium because that's what we can create. But it's just a simple principle of making sure that, that our producers have the tools they need. And that's where the opportunities, they find it themselves. We always do. And whether it be in adversity or whether it be an opportunity, Australian agriculture has always found the way so long as they're provided the tools. And that's the job of government. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Thank you, David. To change tact now, different topic. We're talking leadership. So uh, leadership is an integral part of politics. And obviously with the role that you have, you're incredibly influential and and the opportunity that comes with that in terms of holding and, and respectfully delivering the power that comes with the position. What is your philosophy on leadership? Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how you approach that leadership role with both voters, but also with your colleagues. It's about values and principles and legacy. And I think that's about respecting the traditions and the culture, particularly in my situation of the National Party, the great culture of the men and women that have come before us that have created this culture of family, family within but predicated by the values and principles of why we're here. And we're here to create the opportunity for those 30% of Australians that live outside a capital city. I don't much care about what happens in the city. There's plenty of politicians running around looking after them. But the opportunity that I've been gifted is the opportunity to unlock the potential of those 30% of Australians that live outside of Capital City and particularly live in a regional and remote Australia. So that's the opportunity that I've got to live up to, but the values and principles that have been instilled by those before me and making sure that, that you respect the institutions that have created that. And in our party, it's about respecting the party room, the, the primacy of our party room, that the majority always rule, and that you draw on the diversity of backgrounds of not just experience, but also geography of regional Australia, if you do that. And, you know, I'm proud of that. And that's the legacy that I get to lead and leave. And, you know, we've done the same on nuclear energy. We didn't do anything with nuclear when we were in government because the Liberals couldn't agree on that it's a good idea. We've believed in a long time, but myself and the party room got to a position after the election that we're not going to hold back anymore. We're not in government. We're going to go and fight for this. And if the Liberals want to come with us, they can. If they don't, well, bad luck. But we want to stand true to what we see as common sense. And that's the opportunity I've got. And in my job, by popular demand, it can be a long time or it can be a short time. So it's a bit like uh, when I became Ag Minister. You never know when the axe is about to fall. So you stick to those simple principles. You try to leave a legacy, a legacy of the culture and the values and principles that you've inherited. 
and you leave that for the next generation. But when you do leave, one of the things I'm, I'm you know, and I don't want this to happen too soon, but I always want to make sure that I'm a constructive part of that culture, no matter who comes after me, no matter how what that timing or circumstance is. No one, this job and the privilege I've been given is, is beyond any individual. Those that believe it is about individuals invariably don't leave the legacy that they think they should. And that's the opportunity that I've been given is to leave a legacy. And if I do that, then I'll retire a happy man uh, one way or another out of federal politics at some point in the future. Yeah. When you're negotiating, what frameworks do you use to make a decision to concede, walk away or compromise and achieve some but not all of your objectives? It depends on the circumstances and who you're negotiating with down in Canberra. And it's about making sure you have a baseline and knowing how much you've got your mob with you. I remember probably one of the toughest negotiations I had was the UK Free Trade Agreement. The Prime Minister and the Trade Minister, Tian, wanted a UK Free Trade Agreement, but they were going to take away our working holidaymakers from the UK. It was a, was a concession, about 9000 a year, which we needed desperately. And they needed my signature on the, the agreement through the treaties process uh, because agriculture was part of the, the free trade agreement with the UK. I refused to sign. They were, I think they were actually already in the UK, made it clear that um, I wouldn't sign and the nationals wouldn't sign until such time as we had an ag visa with ASEAN countries. So I didn't care whether that meant they couldn't go and announce it while they were over in the UK, whether they had to wait. But until I got that, we weren't budging. And there was a few tense phone calls. And i got to say, Michael McCormack was absolutely amazing. He stood next to me and said, yep, you keep going. I was out there, but I knew with confidence that I had the back end of my, my room. And I knew the leverage. So I understood the leverage that I had and what I could what I could do and what I couldn't do. So that's important in any negotiations is knowing your leverage, knowing um, how much you do have of that. Because if you don't have a lot, then... Uh, you do need to concede more than, than you normally would. But those are sometimes the things where, you, again, it comes back to what your principles and values are. And when you saw that we were going to lose workers and we had an opportunity to get what nationals have been asking for for a long time, which was an ag visa, in politics you don't miss opportunities sometimes because they very rarely come again. And that's why we just bit the bullet and said, don't care, we're prepared to walk away from the UK free trade agreement if we don't get this because, as I said to them, when the UK left us in the 60s and 70s and, and said they'd go with Europe, we found this little place called Asia and they'd be pretty good to us. So there's no lot upside. Let's dance. It was a pretty cool 24 hours, but interesting negotiations. But taught me a few lessons, but there's other negotiations I've had where be a little bit more careful. And some of those where you negotiate with the Liberals on certain matters that I can't go into specific details into on this one, obviously. Before we wrap up, it's time for our quick fire round. I've got a few questions that I'm going to ask you, David, in fairly rapid succession. So there's two rules to this. The first one is you have to keep your answers to a maximum of one sentence. And the second rule is you have to answer with the first things that comes into your mind. So are you ready? Yep, ready to go. If you weren't in the job you're in now, what would you be doing? I'd be in a small business of some sort. I'd had enough of banking. What's one piece of advice you have for anyone wanting to enter politics or government? Have no regrets. If you've got an inkling, have a go. What would you like to be remembered for? Decency, respect and a legacy for regional Australia. What's the best lesson you've learned from a mistake, a stuff-up or failure? 
just be honest. No problems too big that can't be fixed with honesty. And the last question, finally, is uh, when you're out on a farm, what brand of work boots do you wear? Bloodstones. That wraps it all up, David. Really did genuinely appreciate you coming and enjoying us. <laughs> all good. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website ruralbank.com.au. This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.